Well, good morning. Uh, as always, we have an opportunity to get in fellowship with the Lord before we get rolling. And uh, 1 John 1 9 is the verse that we use to remind ourselves that we need to be in fellowship. That passage says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's just take a moment in the privacy of our soul and uh, have an opportunity for that. And then a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today to think about the scriptures once more. Thank you for the time of fellowship that we'll have after. And thank you, the, thank you that uh, as we have fellowship with you, we can have uh, fellowship with fellow believers. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, teach us by means of your spirit. Help us to recall the great themes of the Abrahamic covenant as they're taught in the book of Genesis. So we understand why some strange stories like Ezekiel, or like Genesis 38 are included and what role they serve in the purpose of God as you revealed it through the covenants. And so we ask, Lord, for understanding and teaching by your spirit and uh, grace and comfort, and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, before we get into the text, I have uh, some time I need to spend to talk with all of you, and uh, this has been coming for a little bit of time, uh, and it's not the most wonderful news that I've come to share uh, today with you. On one hand, on the other hand, uh, maybe it's really good news, and uh, you'll have to take some time to reflect on this and see uh, uh, as you go through the course of the next few weeks uh, if that is indeed the case. But basically, God has a plan for our family's life elsewhere, and so we'll be leaving Fredericksburg Bible Church. We're not running away right away or anything like that, uh, but we have our house on the market, and uh, while we intended originally to move somewhere here, closer to town, uh, God had a different plan. And this is one of those things where I never could have suspected it. I never w intended it. Uh, but God worked things in such a pattern uh, that it became inevitable that it was what he wants us to do. So I've been fighting with God for several months over this decision because there's nothing wrong here. I love you all so very much. There's no, you know problem. Uh, nobody has treated me badly. I'm not upset with anybody. Uh, so it seems so counterintuitive for a boy from what I consider to be from Texas to leave the state of Texas, which is very difficult for a man of my intelligence to decide to do. <laughs> but we'll be going a long way away. We'll be going to the state of Washington and ministering at another church there. Like I said, I never could have really planned this myself. This had to be something that God did, and uh, we have fought a lot. We have cried a lot. Uh, it's, uh, we're leaving our families, you know, all in Texas. Um, we're leaving you wonderful people. Um, we're not going for money. <laughs> we're not going for fame. Uh, we're going for ministry. And that's what we've always been about. This is a huge step of faith for us. But this is what the Lord wants us to do. We become convinced of that. It's probably uh, 
we think probably harder for us than it will be for you. Um, this is your church. This is our life. Um, for 15 years, you know, I've poured into you everything that I have, everything that I am. And you've been gracious to us and you have been patient with us and you've allowed me time to grow and mature and learn to use the tools that I gained in seminary to uh, exposit the word of God. You are a godly people. You are strong. What happens next <laughs> will, in your lives and mine, uh, be the proving ground for being stronger, right? James 1.3, you know, count it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials, knowing that through perseverance, our faith grows. Um, this is the way I reasoned about these things uh, eventually. Um, if God has a plan for us, and I've taught you that all along, that because God has a plan for history, right? He has a plan for our lives as well because we're part of history. So if he has a plan for us somewhere, that means he has a plan for you here. And I don't think that should be doubted by anyone here. I think you should have confidence, right? I'm praying that God will bring someone here who is better for you in so many ways. Someone who will teach the word, who loves the word, and will love you and pastor you. Um, the, the thing that makes it hard is that nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. If something were wrong, in a way, that's obviously the worst way things could happen. But it makes it hard that nothing's wrong for us to go. What I want you to do, of course, is get ready for the thing that God has for you. He has something for you that I can't do. And I don't know what that is. but I can't supply it. So you have to encourage one another. Apply everything that you have learned here and you've been committed to. Don't leave the church. There's no reason to leave the church, okay? We're gonna be, as elders, diligently looking for the next pastor, shepherd. I've already had some pastors who uh, train other pastors contact me uh, because of interest. I'm sure, a lot, I think a lot of people are gonna wanna be in this pulpit. Um, but I don't think anybody except one should be here. And that's the one we wanna find. So, God wants to take me somewhere and I don't know where, why. So I'm having to totally live by faith and trust that he has something in store, which I know he does. But I'm gonna be here as long as our home is on the market and that kind of thing. But as someone shared with me uh, before today, Joshua 1, 
<laughs> Thanks, darling. Thank you. She can get away with that so easy. Mm. Someone shared with me Joshua 1. 5, and this is the transition from Moses being the leadership leader of Israel to Joshua. And it says... Um, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God is not going to fail you or forsake you. He is where we put our trust. He is where we put our confidence. He is our rock. He is our salvation. Ephesians 1.3 says that even though we may be geographically separated, we are seated together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus where we have every spiritual blessing. So any kind of separation is one that's only temporary and experiential because our position we all share right now, seated in the heavenlies in Christ. So I'm going to be around after, of course, after we, uh, during the potluck, you know, and I'll, I'm not leaving right away, so I'm going to be here. But I'm just saying this is a good time you know, if you want to talk or whatever, you know, if you need some encouragement, I'm there, okay? And uh, I'm going to be praying for you. I have been. Oh, like, I've grown through this. My whole family has uh, immensely already. Um, you've been on my prayer so much. And uh, you're going to continue to be because I can't forget everything that's here, right? But I just think that for whatever reason, God says I'm done here. And I think that uh, Acts 20, 24, uh, which has been my charter verse, I think I have fulfilled here, at least. Paul said, but I do not, uh, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And I think I've done that. I will continue to do that elsewhere and expand uh, the ministry that he's given us. And this is an extension of your ministry, okay? Because I've learned and grown and partaken of so much wisdom and I could go to each of you and tell you individually what you've imparted me. Uh, I can look at every one of you. And as little time as some of you, of you have been here, I can say there's something. And I can tell you what that is. Okay, now what are we going to do? Well, what we're going to do now is what we have always done. And that is to put the scriptures first and to uh, listen to what the Lord has to say. We are studying the framework. I want to do that for another 25 minutes or so and then we'll be together there and we can talk. Uh, we have completed the creation account, the doctrines of God, man, and nature, the fall, the doctrine of sin, evil, and suffering, the flood, the doctrine of judgment, salvation, the New World Covenant or the Noahic Covenant where God revealed 
stability in nature for man so that man can live. And we've studied the call of Abraham. And we just completed the call of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 22. And in this passage, we have three great doctrines. What are they? The doctrine of faith, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of the election. Okay, so in short, what? God spoke to Abraham. He verbally spoke. Abraham did what? Abraham believed the word of God. When he believed, God justified him at that point in time. And God then elected to enter into covenant with Abraham. And this covenant gave Abraham a purpose in life. That's what election basically does. It gives you a purpose in life. A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. That's the purpose that we find that God puts us into, and that's what God, uh, God gave to Abraham. That purpose for his life of the land, the seed, and the blessing would secure the goal that God had originally at creation to establish God's kingdom on earth through which he would rule by man for the glory of God. So today we're going to start looking at the outworking of that covenant in the rest of the book of Genesis. Okay, Abraham, then you have Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and uh, they go down to Egypt for 400 years, right? That's the summary of the rest of Genesis. And, but as we look through these pages of Scripture, what we're going to see is that there is a spiritual departure in that family as they move away from God and as God moves away from them in a sense, okay, such that they ultimately are sent down to Egypt, okay, and that is the background or precursor for the Exodus. You've got to have an intricus into Egypt before you can have an Exodus out of Egypt. There's going to be quite a bit of history because um, it's obviously the book of Genesis, but one question, of course, to ask is why is the Bible so interested in history? It's just why? Why, is, why do we even care? Well, first of all, because it's not uh, religion. Okay? The Bible is not a religious book. It's a his historical book. It's about what happened in space and time. Okay? And the Bible in history is structured according to a covenant which was given in history. Um, so the covenant. Okay? And a, a covenant, we said, is a berit. It means to cut. It's basically like a legal contract. Okay? God specified in a contract what he would do, and contracts are documents that could be submitted as testimony in a court of law. So God, so to speak, is nailing down in history, from outside of history, what he is going to do in a covenant. And what he said he would do is he would give Abraham the land, uh, he would provide through Abraham a seed, and what? He would make through this seed in this family a worldwide blessing. So from here on in the Old Testament, what God is interested in doing is tracking his behavior so that we can see whether God is being faithful to his terms in the contract or not. So what is interesting and what I'll show you today is that as this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, spiritually departs away from the Lord, God ultimately is faithful to his word to them. It's just like 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he is faithful. This family is not faith, a faithful family, okay? Yeah, they have moments of faith, but they are not overall a faithful family as we'll trace in the book of Genesis. 
but God is faithful to them. Okay, that's the story we're about to discover. So starting with Abraham, whom we've already studied, Genesis 13, okay? Let's start with this example. Here is a man, Abraham, spiritual man, and he's concerned with family unity. This is an important thing for people who are spiritual. They are interested in family unity. And this is a story where he has taken his nephew Lot down to the promised land, and uh, they both had their own flocks, and these flocks were growing side by side uh, immensely to the point that, you know, their shepherds who watch over these two flocks are arguing with one another. So Abraham, rather than trying to fight with Lot, tries to keep unity by separating into different regions. He says, you, go, you, you choose which way you want to go, which land you want, and, and then, you know, everything will be well. Okay, so this is his strong concern for maintaining family ties and closeness. Okay. Genesis 13, 7 through 12 contain that whole little story. Uh, so that's the first generation. Now, but if you turn to Genesis 37, and we'll read some here. Genesis 37, we're just going to compare that first generation now with the third generation. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. And now we see not unity, but animosity. Not unity, but animosity. So the first area we see spiritual departure... is in terms of family unity versus animosity. There's a trend, and you can watch it in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 37, 2. Here's one of the sons of Jacob. His name is Joseph. How old is he? Just 17 years of age. The guy was just a teenager, okay? And it says he was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Verse 3, we have a problem. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Now, um, how do you think that went over? Um, how does that ever go over? Well, not so good, okay? So, there, remember, there were 12 sons at the time. They all, did, they, did all these 12 sons come from the same woman, by the way? Or they all, did they all have the same, same mother? No, actually, they had four different mothers of these 12 sons. So, we've got a blended family. That doesn't really help things normally. And uh, sibling rivalry, of course, because now we've got a father who loves one son more than all the other sons. And a father and mother may do that, but is that very comfortable for everybody else in the family? Not very comfortable at all. And this was obvious because verse 4 reports this, that his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. So much, it says, that they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. And what do they, of course, you know the rest of the story. What do they try to do to Joseph a few verses later? They try to murder him. They're going to murder their own brother, okay? So only thing we want to see here is notice the difference between this family situation in Genesis 37 and the family situation between Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. This is just a, a few generations. And do you see the spiritual departure already? But the question is this, is God going to stop working with this family just because they're becoming spiritual idiots? Okay, no, he's going to keep working with these idiots. Okay, why? Okay, because he made a covenant with them. Okay, he said he was going to work with them and he's going to work with them because he said he would work with them over and out. He is faithful. He is faithful to his word. Let's look at another example, the second example. 
And this one, Genesis 24, 2. And this, this is an example from marriage. We've got family, we've got marriage. These are called the divine institutions, right? They're very, very important. And look what they're doing to the divine institutions, okay? So, second example, marriage. This is Abraham. Abraham is fetching a bride for his son Isaac. And you want to note how stringent he is on who the people are that he selects a woman from. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. So this is very serious. That you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives, and you will take a wife for my son Isaac you know, from them. Okay? So notice the concern for who this son marries. We are not going to have any Canaanite blood in our covenant line. So don't take a wife from them because we're not supposed to mix. There is the concern for the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant and that the seed line be kept pure. Now look at Genesis 38.1. Let's compare Genesis now with Genesis 38.1, the passage I had read today uh, that Dr. Eden read. That interesting little story. Okay, this is two generations, okay, just two generations. And uh, one of the sons of, of Jacob is named Judah. He was one of the twelve. He was father of the tribe of Judah, right? And let's see where he gets his wife. Okay, Abraham insisted, no Canaanites. Okay, now let's see where Judah gets his wife from. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. Took her means he took her hand in marriage. Okay. Verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er, which we might say is short for error. Uh, <laughs> then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. It should have been Ono, but anyway. Uh, so... Did you see where he got his? He's not concerned about not marrying the Canaanites. He says, uh, this is a good-looking gal. Yeah, and lots of girls outside the covenant line were good-looking girls. But that doesn't mean marry them, does it? But he just goes, takes her, marries her, and now he's got seed with her. So we've got a mixed seed. Okay, mixed seed. This relates to the seed promise God made Abraham. So... What we're seeing again, though, in the second example is a spiritual departure. This family is moving away from God. Okay? Abraham wanted to respect the seed promise. Judah doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He goes and marries a Canaanite. But it gets worse. Okay, here. There was a, a cultural custom. Okay, we're going to keep in this passage. If a man married a woman, okay, and they didn't have any children, and the man happened to die before the woman had these children, any children, then one of the brothers of the man would marry her in order to raise up seed for his brother. Okay? That's not a custom we have, but this is a custom they had. And it's more than that, it was expected okay, uh, by God. So the concern here is the seed. That's why they had this practice, okay, to raise up the seed, okay, to keep the seed lines. But notice verse 6. Genesis 38.6. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. 
Okay, so she married this guy, but this guy was evil, so now this guy's dead, and the woman, Tamar, is just left there as a widow, right? Then Judah said to Onan, so this was his brother. This was the guy who just died. This, this is his, his brother. And so properly, Judah says, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, that's what he was supposed to do. But notice verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. You know, it's going to be raised as, as if it's my brother's, not mine. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the, on the ground in order to not give offspring to his brother. Verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. So now God says, oh, really? You want to play that game? Okay. Another spiritual moron? Well, I, I can handle them. I can get rid of you too. But notice what Judah, his father, does in verse 11. Okay. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So this will be the third, third brother, right? Third brother. But you've got to wait till he grows up. Just stay a widow, and I'll give him to you when he grows up. For he thought, but this is what he was thinking. This is the way the carnal mind works. He says, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And he's thinking, I'm not going to give. There's some curse on this girl. I'm not going to give my third, a third son to her. He'll just die. Question, did Judah trust the Lord? No, I don't know. He's trusting his own devices. He wants to try to protect his sons. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So she's just out there. She's just waiting, living back at home. Until verse 13, she realizes that, you know, Judah has basically lied to me. He has no intention of giving me Sheila as my husband. So we read verse 13. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she starts to uh, come up with a little plan. Okay. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. You know, she changed costumes. You know, this was very, the, the way they dressed depicted much in this culture. And she wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. And, of course, her scheme is, I'm going to get an offspring no matter what. This guy's lied to me. I'm going to raise up seed for my original husband. So in verse 15, here comes Judah, and he's waltzing down the road, and she's sitting there. She's disguised on the side of the road. And it says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now, what's interesting is that this Hebrew word for harlot is uh, zena, Z-A-N-A, zena. And you can tell, if you look down at verse 21, zena was a technical term for a Canaanite temple prostitute. That, was, that is what Judah thought she was. He thought she was a religious prostitute. Okay, from a Canaanite temple. And so that's who he thinks she is. And so verse 16, so he turned aside to her by the road and he said, here now, let me come into you. For he knew, for he, he did not know, excuse me, that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, I'll give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? I mean, I don't have the goat now, so how am I going to have assurance? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Basically, what she's asking for, if it was in, in our culture, she's asking for his credit card. Okay? Give me your credit card. Uh, in those days, they had like a string around their neck, and it had a cylinder on it, and it had your sign on that cylinder. And you'd take that cylinder off whenever you wanted to buy something, and you'd take it and place it in soft clay, and you'd roll it to make an imprint on the clay, and then they'd bake the clay. And this was the receipt that, hey, I got, you know, this is my guarantee, okay? 
So that's what she wanted. She's very shrewd. Give me your credit card. Now he said he agrees. He gives her a copy of his ID. And of course the story goes on. She gets pregnant. It all comes out. He discovers that, you know, who she was. But the point is this. Isn't it interesting and really remarkable that as you move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to Judah, look at what we're observing. We're observing spiritual decay in this family. Okay? I mean, people always read Genesis 38 and they say, oh, immorality, we've got a moral problem. Yeah, there is a moral problem, but it's not just a moral problem. The thing that is of greater significance is that now the moral problem has got so bad that there's an intermingling of the covenant line. The covenant line of God is being mixed with non-covenant Canaanite lines. Or at least they're totally open to doing that. <laughs> so this is a confusion of the seed, okay? The seed promise. They weren't supposed to be doing that. Now here's the third evidence for decay in this family. Genesis 12.8. Turn to Genesis 12.8. And I want you to just look at a, char a characteristic of the man, Abraham, okay? And this is going to be a decay in the area of worship, a decay in the area of worship. So in Genesis 12a, look at Abraham. It says, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai in the east. And there he did what? He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So this guy worshiped the Lord. Okay. Now Genesis 13, 18. 13, 18. Another observation about Abraham and his worship. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelled by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. What did he do? He built an altar for what? For worship. To worship the Lord. And finally, Genesis 21, 33. Genesis 21, 33. This is at Beersheba. Some of you have been to the land of Israel. You've been to this little place. Just the ruins of this place. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And uh, there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He did what? He called upon the name of the Lord. That's, that's worship. Okay. What is the, a very pervasive theme in the life of Abraham? That this guy worships the Lord. He's thankful to God and he worships. Now, if we go and we study the life of Isaac and we study the life of Jacob, how many times do you find Isaac and Jacob worshiping the Lord? Once each. Once each. Then if you go to Jacob's sons, you go to the 12 sons, how many times do you find them doing that? Never. Never. So you have this spiritual departure, okay? And this departure is taking place, okay? And as it does, what, does, what happens to God's interaction with these people? How does he interact with them? Well, he begins to back away. You know, what happens with Abraham, I mean, appears great. I mean, God shows up to him, you know. I mean, literally, there's a theophany. Uh, remember, remember the angel, and they come, and they share supper with him? Um, Isaac, then you come to Isaac, and Isaac has some vivid dreams, and there's like, I think, one theophany. Jacob has the wrestling match with the Lord, okay. 
mostly dreams though. And then by the time you get to Joseph and his brothers, it's all dreams and there's no theophanies anymore. No theophanies anymore. So again, what do you see? As the family is becoming more and more spiritually degenerate, God is like pulling away from the closeness and the intimacy that he was sharing with Abraham. And all this happens in four generations. Only four generations, okay? And you've moved from the first chosen family and being very concerned about not intermarrying Canaanites, not into sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff, not, not hating each other, okay? Not murdering their own family members. And now, in the fourth generation, they're doing all of that. Now, if you were God, okay, or I were God, what would you do? Would you, if you were me, you'd be like, I'm done with these people. I have worked with these people, and I'm not going to work with them anymore because they're just not cutting it. But see, that's only if God operates on the principles that you and I operate on. But he doesn't operate on those principles. He chose to make a covenant with his family, see? And he's going to stick to that covenant no matter what. Now, that is what we call the grace of God. It is undeserved favor, right? And that's, frankly, why he keeps working with you and with me. It is certainly not because you and me are so great. We are, in many cases, just as much a mess as that family. Okay? But he made promises to you, and he made promises to me, and even if we are faithless, he is faithful. Now, if you look to Genesis 39, we'll go to the Joseph story. And work toward the end of Genesis, okay? Genesis 39, all the way to the end, of course, deals with the drama of Joseph, and this is how they get down into Egypt, ultimately. Uh, In this story with Joseph, who is it that is forced, uh, who forces Joseph, the Jew, to go down to Egypt? Well, his brothers, right? But they're fellow what? They're fellow Jews, right? Jews push a Jew down to Egypt, okay? And uh, they wanted to kill him, of course, originally. And then if it hadn't been for big brother Reuben, who stepped in and said, "Ah, yeah, we're not going to go that far. We're not going to kill. You're not going to kill my baby brother. So they decided to throw him in a ditch and leave him. And then they saw some traders coming by and they said, "Ah, maybe we can make some cash off this guy. So let's sell him. And they go home and they tell dad that uh, he was murdered. He was killed by, you know... uh, he was killed and so forth, so, but it didn't really happen. So Joseph is now taken down to Egypt. He's thrown in prison, remember? He gets stuck in there for something like 760-something days, like over two years. And then miraculously, the guy gets out, um, which is, by the way, this is a, sort of a picture of death, you know, being in prison, and then resurrection when he comes out of prison, okay? Because when he comes out of prison, he's not on the same level he was before. Before, he was Potiphar's servant or slave. When he comes out, he's what? He's vice-regent to Pharaoh himself. He has taken a step up. That's what happens in the death and the resurrection. Okay, you have one sta- status in life here, then you die, okay, and then in the resurrection, your status is greatly improved. Okay? And that's what happened to Joseph, and in that sense, it's a story of death and resurrection. By the end of this whole story, of course, there's a famine in the land of Canaan, where the Israelites lived. And so the brother, brothers came to Joseph there in Egypt. They're looking for grain. And uh, they finally, on the second visit, they recognize who he is, and they have remorse over what they had done in the past. And they got their father involved in all this, and the whole family gets to move to Egypt, right? 
the question is, you know, like, who ultimately really moved them to Egypt? I mean, who really did this? Okay. The famous verse is Genesis 50, verse 20. So let's look at it. Obviously, the brothers were involved, but there's something bigger going on. There's a bigger picture. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, says Joseph, speaking to his brothers, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And it's not just, by the way, this is not just talking about the preservation of people's physical lives because they had grain in Egypt. As I'm going to show you, this is talking about the preservation of the nation Israel itself because they would have got amalgamated and mixed with Canaanite culture if they had not left the land. That is what is so great about this book, the book of Genesis, and what God is doing. Genesis 50, 20. God meant it for good. You meant for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament, right? Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love God, for those who have been called according to his purpose, and so forth. This is the Old Testament parallel, okay? And this is the type of verse, of course, that we... We want to apply many, many times when things go sour in our life, okay? We say what, though? God is working all things together for what? For good. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's doing something. So it's really God who took Abraham's seed, okay, through whom the Messiah would come, down to Egypt. And why did he take him to Egypt? That's the next question. Okay, why did he take him to Egypt? Why didn't he take him to Babylon? Why not over there? Now, partly I've already answered this question, but we have to ask this question specifically before we can go down into Egypt. There was something about Egypt, okay? And if you'll turn back to Genesis 15, you'll, we get a hint of what it was about the Egyptian people that was different from the Canaanites, okay? So in Genesis 15, verse 13, we read, God said to Abram, okay, this is in the covenant, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. What land did that turn out to be? Egypt, of course. And what will happen to them in Egypt? Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Okay, so that's the prophecy that this, this family in a few generations is going to go down to Egypt. And be there for 400 years. Verse 16, you know, people read that very quickly. They don't pause. They don't observe this text. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. They're going to return to the land. Okay? So that's a prophecy of, of the exodus, right? Well, there's got to be an exodus, and, and then there's got to be a return to the land. And why? Why are they going to return to the land? It says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's a people group. They were uh, descended from the Canaanites. Okay? And they lived in the promised land, of course, alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth. And God is saying, these people, these Amorites, um, they're going to get more and more and more corrupt. Okay? And where were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob living? They were living right among them. And they were becoming what? More and more corrupt. See? Now they're marrying with them, you know. And they're not worshiping God anymore and so forth. So why then is God going to send them to Egypt? Well, that, the little hint is there in verse 13. It says, you can say, well, the Egyptians are bad. Why do they want to go down to where they'll be slaves? Yeah, but look, this people, it says, will enslave them and oppress them. 
But there's one thing that they won't do. They will not mix with them. They will not amalgamate with them. Not like the Canaanites. See, the Canaanites, they wouldn't intermingle with anybody. Okay? The Egyptians, no, 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 no. Okay, we don't have time to go to the passage, but remember when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, recognize who he is, and he invites them to come and eat, uh, the Egyptians have the brothers sitting over there, and the Egyptians are not going to sit down with them because it says the Jews were loathsome to them. They saw them as a shepherding people, and they were low class, and we, we, don't, we don't eat with those people. So you can see from that little story, the Egyptians, they, kept, they would leave them alone. They would keep separate from them. They're not going to intermingle with them. So let me summarize why God sent them down to Egypt. He sent them down to Egypt because Egypt was a segregated society. They didn't accept Hebrews. Okay? So he put them in an environment where he could protect their identity, and protect the seed promise in the covenant, okay? If they had stayed in the land with all the Canaanites who were getting more and more corrupt, well, their identity would have been lost and the covenant would have been broken. I want you to see that God's hand is at work in history in the covenant. And while people make responsible choices, God is moving, so to speak, the pieces of history to ensure that in the end, his covenant is fulfilled. So they go down to Egypt. Now, after the 400 years, okay, in Egypt, we saw that God's going to bring them back. And why did we say? It says because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full, full, uh, filled, but it will be filled by that time, okay? So why then do you think that God is going to send the Israelites back to the land after 400 years when the iniquity of the Amorite is full? Well, the simple answer is obviously to wipe them out. <laughs> now, this is one of the most controversial things in the Bible. What that's predicting there in Genesis 15 about them returning to the land is what we know later as the conquest under Joshua, right? In the book of Joshua. Now, why, and people say, yes, God is a big meaning. He's just, this is genocide on whole peoples and really critical of the God of the Old Testament here they think is different from the God of the New Testament, the God of love, and so forth and so on, which is total nonsense. But look, look at the context in which he's sending them back to wipe them out. They were becoming so corrupt that they would be, quote, ripe for judgment, see? And then I will send some people in there to exterminate them, my people. Those people that stayed in the land, the Amorites, the Canaanite people, they were not innocent at all. They were a terrible cancer on planet earth okay god gave them 400 years to say change their mind but they didn't see and so god after 400 years says i've got to wipe out this cancer off the earth and that's why i'm going to send joshua and his armies in the conquest now they went into the land did they exterminate all these people no they didn't unfortunately and what ended up happening they ended up living side by side with them and these people were still corrupt and what did the israelites start to do again they started to have sex with Canaanite prostitutes. They started to intermarry. They started to murder. Okay? This little spiritual adventure continued. And that's why Israel ultimately gets booted out of the land at the exile in 586 B.C. Because they had become such spiritual uh, idiots. Okay? But again, we can't, we, if we're going to call them idiots, we might as well call ourselves idiots because we do the same things. Okay? But at least, at least... See, what I've tried to do today is show you why these pages and why these stories are 
present in the book of Genesis, okay? These all somehow relate to the covenant and God's concern for maintaining the uniqueness of the nation Israel so that they are not lost among the nations of the world, see? So God took them out of the land. He put them in Egypt because Egypt was a non-integrated society. They were a segregated society. And there, the nation Israel, the people Israel, which was just a family, you know, 70 people went down to Egypt. For 400 years, those 70 people could grow and become a nation. And that's why Hosea 11, 1 says, out of Egypt I called my son. They grew from just an infant, from just a baby, so to speak, into a son while in Egypt, and they came out. And that's the background for what we're going to study next. We're going to study the great event of the Exodus, which for every Jew is one of the most prominent events in the whole Old Testament because it's so tied to Passover, right? It's God's redemption of the nation, and it's a picture of our redemption as well. And so we'll study judgment, salvation again. The doctrine that comes at, at the Exodus is the same doctrine that we studied at the flood, and that's the doctrine of judgment, salvation, Okay, and of course, under the doctrine of judgment salvation, we have you know one way of salvation, right? Okay, we've got all these little sub truths that we'll go back through. You know, appropriation by faith. Okay, and so forth and all and so on. You know, we've got all the other points, perfect discrimination and all that. But one aspect is going to be developed that we didn't see before, and that is in the Passover. The blood. That blood is put over the door. And so we get a more keen awareness of the doctrine of substitutionary blood atonement. That really begins to come out at the Exodus. And so we'll study this substitutionary blood atonement and we'll study the doctrine of redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. Okay, so that's where this is going. Uh, but first, of course, we'll deal with the event of the actual, actual uh, time in Egypt and so forth and Moses and the judgments and then the salvation of the Passover and, and all of that. So that's where we're going. But this is a great event, and uh, we're going to enjoy it together. So let's close with a word of prayer, and I'm also going to pray for the food so that um, you can immediately go back and start partaking. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We ask, Lord, for uh, peace and for comfort. Uh, we ask for encouragement. We uh, look forward to what all the things that you have in store for all of our lives. Uh, we know that you are good and you are a faithful God. And uh, we have nothing to fear. And uh, we ask, Lord, that each one of us would just apply all the things that we've learned and live by faith. Learn the great, continue to learn the great doctrines of Scripture and be faithful to them. And putting these things into practice in our own lives. And, of course, as we study the Exodus event, we pray, Lord, that we'd have a better grasp of salvation. And... Uh, that certainly we want to tell people about the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that uh, we might have eternal life. And we thank you that the price has been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been paid in full, that he is our Passover lamb. And that thank you that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. That the, It's done. It is finished. And uh, we pray for the food that we're about to partake of. Uh, may it be a nourishment to our bodies. May it fuel us and give us strength to continue this day and to serve and worship you in, uh, in honor and respect and to encourage one another un until uh, that day that you come for us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.